वसुदेवसुत कंसचाणुरमर्दनम देवकी परमानंदम कृष्णम वंदे जगद्गुरु Today is um, the birthday of Swami Vivekananda. It's a auspicious day. Birthday by the Indian calendar. Um, of course, in the English calendar, it's 12th January. It's an important date in India also because in India it's the National Youth Day. So the Indian calendar today it keeps changing every year. <laughs> so uh, it's specially important and auspicious for us here at the Vedanta Society of New York because Swami Vivekananda is our founder. Sri Ramakrishna is at the source of the entire Ramakrishna Vivekananda Sharada, the movement. But this particular ashram is the first Hindu ashram in the West, in uh, at least in the United States. Um, this is founded by Swami Vivekananda. Um, so this is the Bhagavad Gita class. I thought we should begin today by reading a little bit of something which Vivekananda has said about the Gita. He has said many things. Uh, you, across the complete works of Swami Vivekananda, you will find many comments, observations about Gita, about Krishna. But just one observation, one little bit I'll read. Here's a collection. It's called Thoughts on the Gita by Swami Vivekananda. Nice collection from Advaita Ashrama. I'll read a little bit from the first chapter. So in the shlokas beginning with Tam Tatha Kripaya Vishta. So at the beginning of Bhagavad Gita, second chapter. After Arjuna has been, you know, he puts forth his problem with what is what's going to happen. Uh, should I actually fight this war? And then Krishna teaches him and tells him to fight. Which people are taken aback. You know, religion should be about peace. And why is God telling... Arjuna seems to have had the right idea and God is telling him to fight. Uh, why? I remember I was attending this class on ethics by a very noted professor. Uh, very well known in Indian circles at least, Professor Amartya Sen, the Nobel laureate in economics. But he holds two chairs at Harvard University, one of philosophy and one of, uh, of economics. So he had, he had a wonderful course on ethics and he was kind enough to allow me to attend it. So in one of the talks, in one of the lectures, he said, in the Bhagavad Gita, he said, I don't know how Mahatma Gandhi got his doctrine of non-violence from the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> Why? Because uh, Krishna tells Arjuna to fight. And if you look at the chapter 1, when Arjuna describes what was wrong, why, why you should not fight, and what will be the consequences of fighting, and then if you read through to, towards the end of the Mahabharata, you will see, I'm quoting him now, you will see that Arjuna was right. All the things which he said would happen if you fight this battle, you know, destruction of so many people, the families will be ruined and things like that, all of that happened. Uh, so he was right. So here is an answer from Vivekananda. Sri Krishna advises, and I'm reading out from Vivekananda. Sri Krishna advises Arjuna, 
in the words and in the words klebyam masma gamaf partha etc uh, why is he goading Arjuna to fight? Because, because it was not that the disinclination of Arjuna to fight arose out of the overwhelming predominance of pure Sattva Guna quality. It was all Tamas that brought about this unwillingness. The nature of a man of Sattva Guna is that he is equally calm in all situations in life, whether it be prosperity or adversity. But Arjuna was afraid, he was overwhelmed with pity. That he had the instinct and inclination to fight is proved by the simple fact that he had come to the battlefield with no other purpose than that. Frequently in our lives also such things are seen to happen. Many people think that they are sattvika by nature, but they are really nothing but tamasika. Many living in an unclean way regard themselves as Paramahamsas. Why? Because the Shastras, the scriptures say that the Paramahamsas live, live like one inert or mad or like an unclean spirit. Jaravat, Pishachavat, Unmattavat. These are the words used in Sanskrit. That, so the, the crazy people of God, those who are immersed in God, they have no, no um, concern, they have no sense of what is there outwardly because they are so absorbed in God. Now somebody who is just lazy. So Vivekananda says, why? Because the Shastra so and so forth. Uh, but it, here it should be understood that the comparison is one-sided. The Paramahamsa and the child are not one and non-different. They only appear similar, being the two extreme poles as it were. One has reached to a state beyond Jnana, and the other one has not even got an inkling of jnana. The quickest and the lowest vibrations of light are both beyond the range of our ordinary vision. But it is the one in, but in the one it is intense heat and in the other it may be said to be almost without any heat. So it is with the opposite qualities of sattva and tamas. They seem in some respects no doubt to be the same, but there is a world of difference between them. The Tamoguna loves very much to array itself in the garb of Sattva. Here in Arjuna, the mighty warrior, it has come under the guise of Daya or Pity. In order to remove this delusion which had overtaken Arjuna, what did the Bhagavan Lord say? As I always preach that you should not decry a man by calling him a sinner, but that you should draw his attention to the omnipotent power that is in him. In the same way does Bhagavan speak to Arjuna. We'll go on a little more. The point he is making here is um, that there is a new term nowadays called spiritual bypassing. It's a psychologist who invented this term. So we, instead of trying to confront real problems in our world, it may be with other people, it may be in our personal lives, instead of trying to confront that, we say, uh, but I'm too spiritual for all that. I'm the witness of all of this. And <laughs> we had a monk who was very learned in the Vedanta, but he would lose his temper every now and then. He would get mad at people. And then somebody asked him, you're so learned in Vedanta, why do you get angry? He immediately said, oh, anger, that's in the mind, I'm the witness of the anger. <laughs> that may be, but it's, it's not a very convincing <laughs> advertisement for Vedanta. So, 
Arjuna was doing that all those thousands of years ago, spiritual bypassing. He had clearly come to the battlefield with, with some kind of purpose. And then he suddenly reverses it at that moment. Uh, so Krishna now tells him that either for worldly purposes, you have to engage in action, you want the kingdom, you want to punish the evildoers, you want to get what is rightfully yours and your elder brothers and the, what belongs to the Pandavas, good, then you have to fight this battle. Or you do not, you don't want anything worldly anymore, you don't want the kingdom anymore, you have gone above that, you, do, you don't want it anymore. You, you know, Krishna tells him about Vedanta. When Arjuna asks the question, should I fight or should I not fight, Krishna doesn't answer that directly. He teaches him about Vedanta, tells him he's not the body, not the mind, he is the Atman, and all those things which we have studied in the last several chapters. And Arjuna's reaction is, good, this is what I want, wow, this is wonderful, I can become enlightened, so I don't want to fight the battle, That's, that was my whole point, so I don't want to fight anyway. Now Krishna tells him that either for worldly reasons, for whatever reasons you had come to the battlefield, you have to fight the battle, or even if you want to be spiritual, if you want to attain these things we are talking about, you have to um, deal with this situation in your life. Now you can convert this action into karma into karma yoga and Arjuna, Krishna gives him a whole philosophy of karma yoga, how to convert action into spiritual practice. But in either case, running away is not the answer. If you want to be spiritual, you still can't run away. If you want to be a conquering warrior, you still can't run away. In either case, you can't run away. So there is no spiritual bypassing allowed. Another example. So when Vivekananda was returning to India with Sister Nivedita, who had heard so much about India, the glories of India from Vivekananda, and her first sight of India from the ship was you know, the coastline of India. And she went and said to Vivekananda, Oh Swami, how peaceful, how wonderful, how peaceful. And Vivekananda scolded her. He said, No, this is not peace. This is the peace of the graveyard. People are, people are under the domination of a foreign power. People are starving. They are superstitious, uneducated, helpless. And so it seems very calm. This is not calm. This is what he's saying, Tam tamas. The weakness, helplessness, you know, not, ev not even being aware that this can be better. So no struggle. No. So Vivekananda would, would always, always for the first of all, first and foremost, the spirit within us has to be awakened. All philosophy, higher spirituality will come later. Everything that is good and great, he says. Everything that is good and great will come when the sleeping soul is roused to self-conscious self action. An action, what to today we say mindfully, consciously done action. He says goodness will come, excellence will come. All that is good and great in human life will come when this sleeping soul is roused to self-conscious action. Whether it's worldly prosperity, whether it's a better society, whether or it is spiritual realization, all of this will come, but first that spark, that feeling, I can do it. So this is what he noticed here in America, when he came to the, the World Parliament religions and toured across America, especially New York, and he went back and what did he tell his countrymen? So the lessons he learned here, he, he says, I see, the, he would see in Ellis Island at that time, the ships would come in, 
with uh, immigrants from Europe. I see that many people were coming from Ireland at that time. He says, I, I see the Irish come coming in um, uh, and you know, beaten and defeated and he's walking with a stoop uh, and he, that few days later I see him walking straight and you know, looking at you in, in the eye. What has happened to him? Somebody came and told him that Pat, Patrick, Pat, you are a man as much as I am. You know, you can do it. So the American spirit enters into this person and he says, now he says that that first spark must come, whether for worldly development, societal development, personal growth, whatever it is, or spirituality. Now you see. Without that, no spirituality, no, no amount of Vedanta, Yoga, nothing will help. Nothing will help. All of this in a much more simple way. One Swami, he said in the Himalayas, in a very rural way in Hindi, this is from a village. He said that uh, in our village all the farmers knew when the, uh, when the calf is born, the calf struggles to stand up. And if it struggles to stand up, you give it a um, nudge and help it up, it will stand. But there are those calves, some of them might be too sick and they don't struggle to stand up. And the farmer knows there's no use helping that calf because it will die. It won't stand. So it's sort of knowledge, sort of you know, implicit knowledge among people there. So it's that thing. Uh, if the disciples struggle, not that by our own, own power we can become enlightened. No. Enlightenment, God realization is always by the grace of God. But we must want it. Knock and it shall be opened. Ask and you will receive. But that asking and the knocking and the wanting must come from us. That much spirit must be there within us. Look at what Vivekananda says. I always preach that you should not decry a man by calling him a sinner, but that you should draw his attention to that omnipotent power that is in him. In the same way does the Bhagavan speak to Arjuna. It does not befit thee. Thou art the Atman imperishable, beyond all evil. Having forgotten thy real nature, thou hast by thinking of thyself as a sinner, as one afflicted with bodily evils and mental grief, you have made yourself so. This does not befit thee. So says the Bhagavan. Yield not to unmanliness, O son of Pritha. There is in the world neither sin nor misery, neither grief nor disease. If there is anything in the world which can be called sin, it is this, fear. Know that any work which brings out the latent power in thee, it is punya, virtue. And that which makes thy body and mind weak is verily sin. There's a new definition of sin and virtue. The latent power in you? So he says, any work which brings out the latent power in thee, latent power in you that you are the Atman, you are the omnipotent Atman. Everything that happens here is by your will. So that which arouses this, this power, that spark. Klaivyam masma gamaf partha, thou art a hero, a veera, this is unbecoming of thee. If you, my sons, can proclaim this message to the world, 
do not yield to unmanliness o son of pritha this does not befit you so this is for everybody sister nivedita later would say he used this language of unmanliness but he said he expected of women a similar quality for which there is no word in english <laughs> the same spirit he said he expected he says if you can spread this message then all this disease grief sin and sorrow will vanish off from the face of the earth in 3 days what powerful rhetoric huh? all these ideas of weakness will be nowhere now it is everywhere this current of the vibration of fear reverse the current bring in the opposite vibration and behold the magic transformation thou art omnipotent go go to the mouth of the cannon fear not hate not the most abject sinner look not to his exterior turn thy gaze inwards where resides the paramatman the supreme self proclaim to the whole world with trumpet voice there is no sin in thee there is no misery in thee thou art the reservoir of omnipotent power arise awake and manifest the divinity within and he says if one reads this one shloka klavyam masma gamah partha naitatvayupapadyate kshudram hridaya daurbalyam tyaktva uttishta parantapa this is on the second chapter when krishna begins so he begins his teaching with a scolding <laughs> he says vivekananda says here If one reads this one shloka one gets all the merit of reading the entire gita. So different acharyas masters have had their favorite verses. Vivekananda takes this verse nobody has paid attention to. This is at the very beginning of the gita. Vivekananda takes it this is enough. You get the merit of the entire gita by reading this one verse. For in this one shloka lies embedded the whole message of the gita according to Vivekananda. So in our depths when we despair and we don't know what to do where will we get the strength how will we carry on it is this kind of message that helps all the subtle philosophy the schools of vedanta and the logic and the or the techniques of meditation this mantra that kind of breathing no no it is this which helps there is a power in the words of vivekananda i firmly believe this when sri ramakrishna blessed him it's the sort of the power of the avatar a surcharge in vivekananda and what we have left of vivekananda are these words uh, romarola he writes that when i read vivekananda at this distance of 30 years he was writing in about 1930s at this distance of 30 years i still feel an electric shock when i read the words of that hero and what might have been the effect on those who heard these burning words directly from the lips of that hero yes so yeah we are reading the 12th chapter of the bhagavad gita and um krishna is describing the practice of bhakti yoga and the eighth verse the last class was entirely on the eighth verse which is a very well known very powerful verse mayeva mana adhatsva mai buddhim niveshaya nivasishyasi mayeva ata urdhvamna samshaya krishna is saying keep your mind in me place literally place your mind in me fix your intellect upon me upon god then what will happen you will dwell on me immediately and hereafter there's no doubt about it 
from right now. See, here's one point I want to make. The Bhagavad Gita in Vedanta is about spirituality here and now. Spirituality here and now. There, there's another kind of religion which is about the um, what was there before birth, what will be there after death. Not particularly concerned is what is between birth and death. Yeah. But Vedanta is about spirituality here and now. Yes, there are theories about this, um, the law of karma and many births and all of that and what will happen after enlightenment, after death, you never come back to this world, so and so forth. But look at what Krishna is saying here. He's saying that if you do this, what he is teaching here, and throughout the Gita actually, if you do this, for example, you will dwell in me. When? Now. Now. Atta Urdhvam here, one meaning is immediately after you, you, you realize this. From now on. Is talking about a religion, a spiritual realization, which is here, which is now. There can be a kind of religion which is hereafter. After death you will see God. I mentioned sometimes you see in the United States here, you drive along, you'll see these big billboards. After death you will see God. Slightly ominous. <laughs> and the big guy is waiting for you after death. And below that will be written, call 1800 something like that. They'll tell you more about it. For some dollars. <laughs> but look at the word after. After means a time word. Before and after. But here Krishna is saying now, here. Another board says, heaven is a place. Heaven is a place. I'm no doubt heaven is a place. I have no doubts about that. But that means that's another place. This is one place. Here that means this is not heaven. And that is heaven. The poet, God's in his heaven and all's right with the world. That means God is in his heaven, not here. But Krishna says, right here, right now, you will dwell in God. How can we be immersed in God here and now? That's Krishna's concern. Vedanta talks about what is you know, Brahman, the ultimate reality in Vedanta, which we are supposed to realize. It's available where? Everywhere. It's available when? All the time. Every when. <laughs> All the time. And it's nothing other than you. Look at it in another way. How can, you, how can we dwell on God, in God, think about God? He says, place your mind in me. And that means not anything else. But how can we place the mind in God all the time? It's not possible. You can't think one thought all the time. You just can't. Even if you could, you would... Um, it's almost impossible, but suppose you could, but you then you'll fall asleep at one point. You dream and then you'll stop dreaming, deep dreamless sleep and the thought is gone. So you, it can't be a practice that uh, you'll have to think about God or keep your mind in, keeping your mind in God is not, not a practice. You can practice it, but it can't be then continuous and unbroken. There are only two ways of making it continuous and unbroken. But which are the two ways? One way is, you know, all our experience of the world is of the structure is of subject and object. We experience the world of, this is, this is the world we are experiencing. The world is always with us, or too much with us in the words of the poet. So the world is too much with us, but the world is always with us. So one way of experiencing God all the time is if this world which we are experiencing, all of it, Every bit of it is somehow God. That's one way. 
then whatever you experience you're experiencing god if you realize it if you, if you know that or the other way is the another thing that is with us with us all the time effortlessly is i myself my own self you are there right whenever you are you are there <laughs> so our own self is always there if we realize somehow the identity of this self with god that also will enable us to be with god all the time so only these two ways either you see everything as god which arjuna did in the 11th chapter that was the extraordinary vision vishwarupa the universal form of god which arjuna had in the 11th chapter or the what advaita vedanta tells you what teaches us what are we exactly once you realize what you are you're never away from god that's the highest form of bhakti actually krishna and in fourth chapter somewhere he says the devotees lovers of god they come in four four varieties he's talking about one who is in distress in trouble they pray to god second those who want something in the world not in trouble but they want something in the world they pray to god third those who are inquirers who am i what is all this does god exist and fourth the enlightened ones and what kind of enlightened one krishna says gyanicha and krishna says the knower of god the enlightened one the gyani is the is the he goes on to say is the best bhakta the gyani is the best bhakta the, the, the knower of god the real, one who has realized is the best why krishna gives an answer to that also because that person is never away from me how is the the gyani never away from god because the gyani the knower the one on the path of knowledge who's become enlightened has realized that i am brahman not i the individual being that's megalomania i this witness consciousness not body not mind the impersonal atman that is identical to divine i am atma brahma that has been realized so you can never be away from your own self therefore you're never away from god so these are the only two ways you can always be krishna says put your mind in the only two ways when you can effortlessly be with god all the time and these are two conceptions in the bhagavad gita we have been introduced to four conceptions of god four conceptions one the avatar the incarnation krishna himself so when he refers to himself so as the avatar as the incarnation of god rama krishna rama krishna jesus um, um our uh, uh, we hindus even accept bhagwan buddha who did not accept god we accept him as an uh, incarnation of god so hindus we are incorrigible that way everybody is incarnation of god for us so the, that is one form in the human form god has come in the human form among in history appearing at a particular time uh, so that is one one way of uh, thinking about god <laughs> and that that uh, krishna has introduced himself that he is an incarnation of god he says i come from age to age i come i incarnate the, the idea of the incarnation of god is very clear in the bhagavad gita that's one conception of god second conception of god is the transcendent god who is the creator of the entire universe beyond the universe beyond space and time uh, heaven is a place so the lord in vaikuntha narayana in, in the in divine abode of vaikuntha or shiva in kailasha or a father in heaven the creator of the universe the god of the theistic religions the creator preserver preserver destroyer the brahma sutra says janmadhyasya yataha 
the from which has come the birth existence and the dissolution of this universe that reality is brahman there is a sutra janmadhyasya yataha the second sutra of the brahma sutras asya jagata janmastiti bhanga yasmat tad brahma of this universe from where its origin its existence and its destruction comes that is brahman there's a second conception of god that is basic that second conception is basically what we mean by god when we talk about god when most people talk about god they mean some ultimate reality power which has created this universe that's a common definition of god in all theistic religions the creator creator an ultimate reality omnipresent omniscient all the omnis omnipresent omniscient omnipotent and so on all powerful all knowing and all of the all good so that's the second conception of god that's what we normally mean by god when we say god then there's a third conception of god which comes out in the 10th and 11th chapters which is the god from which the new universe has come and in the universe the god is there yeah. it is the immanent god the second conception first conception incarnation second conception transcendent god creator all powerful etc third conception the immanent god in everything as this universe so that is um, special to hinduism vivekananda said we hindus worship a transcendent immanent god transcendent beyond the entire universe beyond space time and immanent in and through this universe everywhere this that's the third conception the fourth conception is the advaitic idea aham brahmasmi that reality which appears as individual and as god but it's beyond both in the words of meister eckhart um, mystics in all religions have had this intuition this is the final and the highest conception where you and the ultimate reality are one and the same reality but you not in the sense what you are and god not in the sense of the transcendent immanent god uh, meister eckhart's words um the ground of my soul and the ground of god are one and the same ground it's literally a mahavakya you know that thou art or um, i think al halaj or something a great sufi mystic who said that when i search for allah i found myself when i search for myself i found allah literally this identity but this is the fifth and the sort of highest conception the non dual idea of the ultimate reality so here he is speaking about the um god as the incarnation god as that which is beyond um, the this created universe and god as being present in everything in this universe it's in that third and the fourth conceptions of god that you can have the presence of god all the time either as everything that you experience or as you the experiencer i'm making lots of philosophical observations uh, one more and indulge myself see what a beautiful insight it is the common person without any kind of spiritual leaning without subscribing to any school what do we regard as the truth it is what is revealed to the mind through our senses through our thinking through our education whatever we are convinced about for the time being what are we convinced about what the mind is accepts as true 
<laughs> they call it manasa pratyaksha. The mind with its senses, with its education, you think this is true. And then somebody tells you it's fake news. Oh, then I, I stop believing it. But what, whatever my mind is, con- uh, uh, is convinced about as the truth, that, that's what we accept as the truth. That is f- as far as conventional thinking goes. Now, higher than this, one step higher, we'll go. You know, we're talking about truth, refining the idea of truth. Not what the mind is convinced about in the world. That this such and such, such and such is the case. That's what we consider to be truth. That this is the case. This is so. I'm convinced. This is the reality. And that is the truth. No, not like that. Whatever to whatever all these things, true and false, are presented, that one is the truth. Let me repeat. You are the witness consciousness. I am not the body, not the mind. I am awareness itself. And this awareness illumines the mind and the senses. With the mind and the senses, I experience the world. Whatever I experience in the world, in the world outside, in this body, and through the senses, whatever I see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and whatever I think, and I feel, and I remember, and I understand, all of it is being illumined by one unchanging, as Aurobindo said, an immortal gaze. The white glare of an immortal gaze. What is that immortal gaze? That one unflickering consciousness which we are. In uh, Sanskrit, Sakshi Chaitanya. What is the truth? The truth is that consciousness alone. You are the truth. So, so this is Advaita. No, it is not Advaita. This is Sankhya. Sankhya. This is Yoga, Patanjali Yoga. Why? Because you are the truth, you are consciousness itself and the entire universe is presented to you. But you have two here. You have two here. Isn't it? You are the consciousness and to you so many things are presented. In a worldly sense, you are concerned about among all the things that you are experiencing, which is true and which is not true. That you are con- that's the worldly way of looking at truth. The Sankhyan way, the uh, yogic way is which is the one which is illumining truth and falsity in the world? That one is the truth. It's a higher truth. But still there's a distinction between you and your whatever you experience. Between the subject and the object. Between consciousness and its objects. Now we are coming to Advaita. So it's a sort of building up to Advaita. What is Advaita? Advaita is that one unbroken awareness which appears as the knower, as the known and as knowledge. Think about it here. Even the distinction, I am the witness consciousness and this is the world. Advaita will ask the question, this is the world, isn't it appearing to you in consciousness? See, when I say, this is a book and my eyes are seeing the book. Clearly the book is separate and my eyes are separate. But in my experience, my eyes and the book, all of them are appearing in me, the consciousness. Do you ever have if you understand this, it's a very subtle point, but simple point. Do you ever have the experience of the book outside your experience? It's tautologically impossible. It's a trivial question. Everything is within experience. And the nature of experience itself is the ultimate reality. There is a uh, phrase, Anubhava Matram Param Brahma. 
So not the core of the experience, which is pure consciousness, not the experienced object. It is that Brahman, that unbroken existence consciousness bliss, which appears as you the knower, your known object and the knowledge of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, the knowledge of truth and falsity, all of these. Anyway, the pure underlying one undivided reality. That is what in, re in religious language, you know, I say, uh, immortal, immortality, go beyond birth and death and one becomes immortal. Immortal life, and on all, all theological religions they talk about eternal life, immortal life. That's just a religious way of philosophically what is called Sat, pure being, without beginning and end. Sat, pure being, without beginning and end. And make a point, don't forget your question. That in religious language is called immortal, uh, you know, eternal life. Pure consciousness, that which is coined into our so-called knowledge in this world. Pure bliss, ananda, that which is, appears as all value, pleasure, joy, aesthetic experience in this life. So the ultimate reality which appears as what we experience as life is Satchidananda, existence consciousness bliss. Yes. So you say that. Um, oh, microphone. No, you said. Um, yes, it, we can hear you. Okay. You said about being Sankhya hmm. when you talked about truth, but you said that um, when you said that the knower, the knowledge, and the process of knowing is one, hmm. and that's a. Yes. But in Bhagavad Gita, the prayer we say Brahmarpanam means that, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. It's Advaitic. Yes, Advaitic. Not Sankhya. No. The Brahmarpanam, Brahmavi, that the, the chant we do from the fourth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, 24th verse, that is Advaitic. You can't explain it in Sankhya. In Sankhya, there are two uh, real, ultimate realities. One is consciousness, Purusha. The other one is material nature, Prakriti. So, Bhagavad Gita is not mm -hmm. all about... Sankhya. It has yeah, Advaitic. Yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, yes. There's another beautiful thing about the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, you have strands of all philosophies here. Sankhya is mentioned by name in the Bhagavad Gita. Yoga is mentioned by name, although these are the meanings were different maybe at that time. Um, Bhakti is mentioned here. Advaita generally is not mentioned here, but it's mentioned as oneness all throughout. Yeah. Verses like Brahmarpanam Brahmahavi. Advaita as a, as a philosophy came late, later, but the central teaching is there in the Upanishads and the Gita is based entirely on the Upanishads. Yes. Alright, now I'm, we're going to start. <laughs> we haven't started yet. That was just my rant. Now Krishna moves on. He says, you fix your mind on me, intellect on me and you will dwell on me hereafter. But then we say, easier said than done. We scratch our heads. Hundred different thoughts, feelings, experiences crowd our lives. It's, we hardly can keep our minds on God. Uh, unshakably keep your mind and intellect in me. Not possible. Can't do it. Krishna knows that. And therefore, he comes to, steps it down. He'll give you, if you cannot do this, then do this. He will tell us next. And if this also you cannot do, then do this. And if that also you cannot do, then do this. One more thing he will tell. 
So in Vedanta you have this entire range of things which are uh, available for everybody. There is something for everybody. Something for everybody. Something that is useful for everybody. Somewhere anybody can, can start. We can all start. Number nine. You can repeat after me. Atha chittam samadhatum Atha chittam samadhatum Nashat no shimaisthiram Nashat no shimaisthiram Abhyasa yogena tato Abhyasa yogena tato Mamichaptum dhananjaya Mamichaptum dhananjaya We'll do the 10th and 11th also. 10th. Abhyase apya samathosi Abhyase apya samathosi Matkarma paramo bhava Matkarma paramo bhava Madartham apikarmani Madartham apikarmani Kurvan siddhim avapsyasi Kurvan Siddhim Avapsyasi 11. Atheita Dapyashaktosi Atheita Dapyashaktosi Kartum Madhyogamashritaha Kartum Madhyogamashritaha Sarva Karma Palatyagam Sarva Karma Palatyagam Tata Kuruyatatmavan Tata Kuruyatatmavan. So fix your mind on me, intellect on me, unshakably. Can't. I'm very shaky. <laughs> Everything is shaky about me. Uh, Swami Adishwaranandaji, who was in the Ramakrishna Vivekananda Center on the, the east side ashram, so he had a huge collection of jokes. So he said, the, he would make fun of the four yogas, you know, the Jnana Yoga, Karma Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, and Raja Yoga. He said, those who concentrate exclusively on the path of meditation, always meditating and silent and inward, and he said, what do they become? Spooky. Those who are exclusively devotees, always singing and dancing and crying for God, what do they become? Shaky. <laughs> and those who are exclusively on the karma yoga side, always schools, colleges, hospitals and all, go going around collecting donations and you know, fundraising and all, what do they become? Shady. <laughs> <laughs> and the last one, Jnana Yoga, I've forgotten, but I don't know if anybody remembers. <laughs> so another one like that. So shady, spooky and shaky. And one more. So he says, if you cannot do this, Krishna says, then um, what is the way? Abhyasa Yoga. What is this Abhyasa Yoga? We'll have to see. You have to practice Abhyasa Yoga. And by Abhyasa Yoga, you will attain to me, attain to God realization. If you cannot practice Abhyasa Yoga, what that is, we will see. If you cannot practice that also, then devote yourselves for, to works done for me. Work for the glory of God. Work for God. And if you cannot do that also, the 11th verse says, then surrender all that you do to me. The results of all that you do to me. 
So what do what do these things mean? Nine, he says. Oh, so you can't concentrate uh, your mind on me? No. In that case, why don't you do the abhyasa yoga? So, oh, really? I haven't heard of this one. It's a new kind of yoga. And especially in America, we are always eager for new kinds of yoga. Uh, in, in Hollywood, the Vedanta Society, they, they put out a, in, in the notice in the website that come next Saturday, so and such and such time, come for karma yoga. And most people know what it means. But this one lady who is innocent who came with her yoga mat turned up <laughs> and said, I've come for the karma yoga class. And then somebody had to explain to the poor soul that, no, it's not that kind of yoga. The Swami is going to give you chores to do. <laughs> but she was sincere, I heard. She did a lot of work for the next two hours. So what is this Abhyasa yoga? Abhyasa literally means repetition, practice. Abhyasa means practice. The answer here, if you're looking for a shortcut solution, so I can't keep my mind steadily on God. What's the way out? What did Krishna say? He said, nothing more glamorous than practice. <laughs> we go back, he said this already. In the sixth chapter, when he taught meditation, and Arjuna said, this is no good. This meditation you have taught me is no good. And why not? So it's because I can't control my mind. It's like I, you're trying to control the wind. I might as well try to control the wind. Then Krishna says, yes, definitely the mind is difficult to control, but in the sixth chapter, at the end, he says, you have to do these two things, practice and dispassion for the world. These two things, if you combine, then meditation, mind will calm down. Practice. The essence of practice is repetition. Essence of practice is repetition. What is the power of repetition? Why? Why is repetition so powerful? There is a difference between knowledge, realizing, understanding, realizing something, and action. See, our body is a machine, is a biological machine. It's matter. And machines, matter, have their inertia. And the mind is also a machine, it's matter. It also has its own inertia. So, once it's our life, our habits, um, our daily routines, our ways of work and our ways of thinking and feeling, once you set them in a particular direction, you notice they're difficult to change. You can change them, but it's difficult to change. Why is it difficult to change? It's difficult to change because they don't listen to reason. They listen to repetition. There's a difference between understanding and training. Understanding and training. The psychologist Jonathan Haidt, uh, he has written this book, The Power of Happiness. No, the Happiness Hypothesis. It's an old book. But he makes a wonderful point there. He says this huge literature on self-help. You go to Barnes & Noble, you'll find an entire, shel uh, not shelf, row, full of, uh, you know, glossy books on well, like improving your life, like anything, you can become rich, you can become liked by people, you can become thin, you can remain young, you can um, influence other people, you can um, you can meditate better, you can overcome stress, you can increase your productivity many times, what not? All sorts of things. And the thing is, they're not entirely wrong. They might exaggerate, 
but they do con con contain nuggets of truth. Now the question that Jonathan Haidt raises, I think he's a professor, he was at least a professor of psychology at CUNY here in New York. Um, the question that he raises is, but then why aren't our lives changing? People buy so many of these books and they read them also, they try it out once in a while. But why aren't our lives changing then? Our life should have become much, much better if these are, if these work, if what these books claim, our life should have become better. They're among, and Barnes and Noble shows that they are among the best sellers, self-help books. So why aren't our lives changing? And then he, he answers it, it was a beautiful analysis. He says, see, our bodies and minds are like this elephant and the rider, the mahout on an elephant. Now, the mouth, the one who is sitting on the elephant, he knows where he wants to go. And he can guide the elephant there. You know, take a left here, take a right there. But the, if the elephant is not trained, the elephant doesn't want to do what the mouth asks him to do, then there is very little that the mouth can do. But the elephant is much stronger than the mouth. So the elephant wants to go to the right and find some bananas it can steal. And the mouth wants to go left. The elephant is going to go right. It won't listen to the mouth. How does the mouth make sure that the elephant will go where it wants it to go? See, how it applies to us is, he gives a very nice example. You read that it's wonderful to get up early in the morning and do yoga or something like that. And you are convinced. You listen to the TED talk, you have read the book, you have read the you know, self-help book, you bought it at Barnes and Noble, and you have understood the whole theory, and now you want to do it. But the problem is, the next morning when you get up, you set the alarm at, you, know, you used to get up at 9 o'clock, now you get up at 5 a.m. or something like that. 4 a.m. You set the alarm at 4 a.m. What happens then? You are fully convinced about the, all the tremendous benefits that are coming your way. When your alarm rings, you don't want to get up. Why not? Because the body says, nope. You are convinced. You means the intellect. You have, you have read the book, you have read the data, you have read everything about what happens to people who get up early in the morning and meditate and do read or what not. They do amazing things in the morning. You want to do all those amazing things early in the morning. But the body will say at 4 a.m. in the morning, it's cold and I'm tired. I didn't get enough sleep last night. And uh, did you ask me before you started this program? You didn't consult me. You went to that stupid TED talk and read that stupid book. What about me? Did you ask me? I am the one who has to do the getting up in this cold morning. So the body tells you, you can get up and do your yoga and all that. I am sleeping under the bed. And we fail. We fail. Because it's the body is like the elephant. The mouth is like the intellect. The elephant doesn't go to the TED talk. The elephant is not interested in your plans or what. No. So now the question is, what does the elephant respond to? It won't respond to talks, it won't respond to books, it won't respond to Gita classes, none of that. What will the elephant respond to? And he says, what does, how, how does the elephant, how, how do you get the elephant to obey? Training. Training consists of systematic, well thought out repetition. Yeah. So, uh, you must train the elephant. Training the elephant is training the body, training the mind. Almost everything we can do. Don't think we cannot do it. Something that others have done, we too can do. Only thing is, it takes a little bit of time, repetition, it's unglamorous hard work.
but the results are miraculous the results are miraculous over a period of six months one year we don't give it time we want it all just like we heard it in a, in a TED talk 18 minutes so 18 minutes we heard it in 18 minutes and we want the result in 18 minutes also or less that's impossible it might take 18 months it might take a year so repetition this is abhyasa but this is not all abhyasa yoga the commentator Ramsuk Das you wrote a huge commentary in Hindi on this book on the Gita he says just repetition is not abhyasa yoga when it is done for enlightenment God realization then it becomes yoga yoga is that which connects you to God just repetition of something can can give you the power to achieve things in the world you can get better health you can get knowledge you can get your degree or whatever if you can if you work hard at it and you can get whatever you want in the world within limits but spiritual life devotion um, god realization enlightenment when you want that and you are going through the process of repetition for that then only it becomes yoga so abhyasa yoga notice when krishna tells arjuna about how do you meditate better he didn't just say repeat he said abhyasa vairagya dispassion vairagya means dispassion for everything else in the world this renunciation this turning away you may not become a, a monk uh, formally but internally monk like turn towards god self-realization enlightenment however you define it and away from worldly pursuits the worldly pursuits will be there Arjuna's battlefield was there Arjuna, Arjuna would have been very happy to hear this he said yeah I want to turn away from my worldly pursuits but this Krishna character won't let me <laughs> no that will be there but the goal is no longer that goal is no longer the world the goal is God realization then it becomes Abhyasa Yoga Basically, it means systematic spiritual practice, a time for meditation, a time for prayer, time for scriptural study, and the conversion of our work into worship. So, Karma Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, Raja Yoga, uh, Jnana Yoga, all the shady, spooky, <laughs> shaky stuff. <laughs> no, that is uh, the downside of it. But uh, systematic practice. So, that is. Now, if we cannot do that, if you cannot do that, then in the next verse, the tenth verse, Krishna says, Suppose I try, but I don't have time and energy and, uh, you know, devotion to God. I try, but it's sort of mechanical. I don't have that feeling. And meditation, I try, but I, either I'm sleepy or my mind is all over the place. So I'm trying regular spiritual practice, but it's, I'm not making any progress. Then Krishna says, you give the emphasis on work. If the mind by itself is not getting focused on God, then give it help. Give it help. Engage the other senses. So, uh, he says, Madartham Apikarmani. Do work for God. And then the commentator here has sort of narrowly defined what is the work that has to be done for God. And he says, Ekadashi, Upavasa, Nama Sankirtana Adini. So whatever we consider as devotional exercises, 
like fasts and chanting and uh, singing and prayer and worship all these things the commentator here the tikakara says that's what krishna means by doing work for god that means basically temple work work associated with um, worship maybe in your own home or in the ashram or somewhere so which is directly connected to the divine that kind now suppose that also is not possible it's not possible for everybody it's not possible for everybody then the last one the 10th one krishna says 11th verse in that case, do whatever it is that you are doing. Your life calls upon you. You have a job, you have a family, you have responsibilities in the world. Um, you don't have much time and energy left over for so-called spiritual exercises. Then whatever you are doing, you say that, and the Tikakara, he says here, Ishvara Agnaya Yatha Shakti Karmani. By the will of God, I am placed in this circumstance. Anybody who, you know, who has slightest faith in the existence of God will have to admit, well, God knows. God is omniscient. So doesn't God know that I am in this situation? In this very difficult situation? Yes, God knows. So I've been placed in this situation. In this body, with these people, in this job, in this financial situation, in this relationship situation, in all sorts of trouble, I've been put. God knows. In that case, let me do the best that I can do here, Yatha Shakti, to the best of my capacity. Maybe quite imperfect. Maybe well, maybe not well at all. In the eyes of the world, you're not doing well. In the eyes of your boss, boss is dissatisfied, you're not doing well. But in the eyes of God, it, it doesn't matter. If you're internally trying, if we are trying, yathashakti, and then surrender it to the Lord. Whatever the result is, our, it becomes worldly when the work itself is not worldly. It becomes worldly when we are doing it for worldly goals. You know, the boss will be satisfied and I'll get this promotion. Or people at back at home will be satisfied. No. Um, you'll never satisfy anybody. Take it as a, a guarantee. Yes, never. I was very touched one day, one in an ashram far, far away. So don't relate it to anybody here. Uh, one uh, elderly gentleman once came up and to me and said, "I have this question for you. You know, I have been practicing some kind of meditation and all of that, and I really want to take this up seriously. But I can't retire. My wife is not satisfied with anything." And she wants this, she wants that. And she says, you're not interested uh, in you know, how the family is running or samsara is running and so on and so forth. Uh, and so I have to still keep working. He was quite elderly. He was in his 60s, I think, by that time, maybe 70. Uh, and I also feel guilty that I really haven't been able to do much. I said to him, enough, enough. There isn't much time left. You are lucky that you have this spark of interest in God realization, in devotion, in faith in God, in whatever form you have got it. Nurture that. You will never satisfy anybody. You have done enough. It might not be much by your standards or by your family standards. But that's enough. 
don't be this continuous engagement with the world we have to you have to turn yourself away from it swami vivekananda since we are talking about vivekananda he says there are these two ways in spiritual life it is true that this is all brahman there is one existence consciousness bliss which is appearing as this world then turn your mind away from it from the world from this body from this mind uh, and attend to that reality which is beyond the mind and center yourself in it and be merged in it and that's it it's done this is called the path of neti neti this is the path of the gyani the path of knowledge but then he says very very few people can do it very very few people can do it he says this is the direct path and then he says there is another path the path of iti iti this this these are the words he uses and he says there it's a longer path perhaps but where you use the world and its resources to help you in your spiritual struggle and growth so there you don't have to give it up and turn your attention entirely away from everything and realize the underlying truth and remain centered in that if we could we would but very few people can now i want to make a distinction here there's a difference between understanding this and being able to manifest it in life that's why vivekananda was was spiritual in a tremendously practical sense it's not so much as have you understood the the truth of the non dual path yes i have understood good has it helped you at least you personally practically from moment to moment to overcome all your sorrows what the goal was don't shift the goal posts the goal was overcoming of sorrow and attainment of bliss have you done that honestly to yourself no then where does the shoe pinch so vivekananda says i know very well where the shoe pinches it's not been the non dual philosophy that's perfectly good the fact is we are not ready for it the fact is there are these things that we have to work out so the working out that might take a long time and there comes the rest of it the uh, training of the body and the mind the regular spiritual practices and then vivekananda says in this path of iti iti using the world to go towards our final liberation you know manifestation of the divinity within ourselves he says in this the, the crucial turning point is this internal renunciation that not he says restrain this tentacle of i and mine the tentacle of he calls it the tentacle of selfishness and instead he says offer everything to the lord that there, there is some ultimate power which is behind this entire place i have been put into i have been put in here with these people in these circumstances there is a power behind all of this so i offer everything up to that power call it the divine mother call it my beloved lord call it whatever you will vivekananda says it's not that you don't have to have a child have the child but don't say me and mine the lord alone i am worshiping through this child through this husband through this wife through this parents through this boss the boss already thinks he's god anyway so <laughs> it's an easy thing to practice so in all these ways in all whatever we are wherever we are internally give up this this i me mine all of this arena is meant for my spiritual development and i am worshiping the lord in the place where the lord has put me doing what the lord wants me to do very clearly so this internal shift ex 
externally everything can continue so he says this may be a longer path but uh, this you know it is something that everyone can do and those who have understood with clarity the non dual truth that i am brahman this is a good way of living you realize that you are brahman now what do you do with the rest of your life you live like this all right so this is what krishna says at the final step that give up all the results of work to me. you can pass down the microphone there there is a gentleman who's asking a question now raise your hand so that he knows where to go pram maharaj uh, i have a question on vairagya so it seems like the mind has ample vairagya when it's not directly involved with the world but the moment it starts to deal with the world again the world sticks to the mind and even affects it during like meditation and spiritual practices as well so how do we not let our work in the world affect our practices yes vairagya that is the important thing the vairagya the dispassion why does does our mind stick why does the world stick to our mind why is the mind sticky it's because of likes and dislikes it's because we have all these uh, all important projects in the world you might say what's wrong with having projects in the world nothing as long as those projects are supposed to help you towards spiritual realization or enlightenment but if you think that those projects in the world i have to get this degree i have to go to the ivy league colleges i have to get this top um, you know job and to get married have kids um, and have a wonderful social uh, circle and uh, have all these facebook followers or instagram followers and all of this is my part my project in the world for what for becoming fulfilled for you know this is what i see as a great life in the world waste of time it will take you some take us some maturity to understand that the world is not meant to give us ultimate peace and fulfillment it has never given anybody ultimate peace and fulfillment the world is not useless the world is useful we over time we begin to realize the world is vivekananda said a very good gymnasium it is meant to exercise our spiritual muscles to develop spiritually so that we we become more and more mature and then we what we seek is not the world not the people not the facebook likes but uh something higher than this something transcendent something spiritual call it god realization self realization enlightenment whatever you call it so that internal switch must come the straight answer to your question is how do i prevent my mind from being sticky make it sticky if you want to make it sticky make it sticky for only one thing let only god stick to your mind don't let the world stick to your mind so but easier said than done swami yes in that case what you will see now what krishna said and what vivekananda said is so directly practical if i can't prevent the world from sticking to me then let me have this internal attitude that these people this job these things which i really want i can't deny that i have these desires good vivekananda says good have those desires but make it part of your worship of god yes i do i do love this uh, cookie i'm going to eat the cookie well eat it as a prasad mentally offer it to the lord and then you eat it you might say that's just a little bit of imagination you still the sugar is still sugar that is true 
but might be a little bit of imagination slowly the whole attitude is transformed till very soon mentally we are doing everything for god you can eat to god you can bathe to god you can go to work for god in the office you can take care of your family members for god so keeping that divinity in the center an entirely private entirely internal it's a very very powerful technique which vivekananda is talking about that over time purifies the mind one interesting thing is when you do it for god then the desire goes and sticks to god instead of the object instead of that particular human being that particular gadget that particular see whatever we stick to in the world whatever sticks to us from the world and sticks to the mind will ultimately fall away the reason being none of them is ultimately uh, very uh, fulfilling what stick to us what we want why do we want it because we have this intuition it will give us happiness it will give us fulfillment will it only temporarily and when it does not then it falls away then something else gets sticky to us and there something else sticks to the mind maturity is none of these things will make me fulfilled now at this point if i can't get rid of everything and become centered in the one limitless existence consciousness place tall order then in that case stay with the world stay with all the sticky stuff but mentally keep connecting it to god it might seem like imagination in the beginning very soon it will not seem like imagination and we will get a kind of very pure satvik joy within internally the whole day will become like a worship slowly over time let me do the peace chant and then we'll take the questions uh, we can ask our basket people to be ready with it om shanti 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 hari om tat sat shri ram krishna rupanamastu raise your hand then you can get the microphone here can you send the microphone to the front can someone send the microphone to the front yes please bring it to the front just give it to the lady here yes so, namaste swami ji speak into early, the microphone yeah. yeah in the earlier part of this chapter 12 you has you had said that bhakti yoga is the only one where you don't have to do anything like karma yoga you work and gyana yoga you have to become an adhikari you practice all those things bhakti yoga you only surrender Mm. that's how you started this chapter now what happened yes it's gone okay speak loudly yeah now you tell me i can hear you i'll repeat the question yeah concession after concession after concession is given yes where you don't even have to surrender you don't even have to work yes Mm. a little bit one has to do see notice yes so how does one attract the grace of god if uh, so many concessions are being given keep your mind fixed on me keep your intellect fixed on me unshakably can't do that all right practice regular spiritual practice um keep your mind on god through regular consistent spiritual practice can't do that all right do work for god ritualistic puja worship kirtan chanting can't do that 
then do whatever it is that you are doing but you mentally offer it to God. Notice in all of these things one thing is being asked for. Our attention. Uh, our attention. Is it on the world or is it on God? Mm. This is something the uh, Silicon Valley has learned. It's called the attention economy. <laughs> the reason that they want us online all the time, mobiles and all, is that attention translates into money nowadays it seems. The more attention you pay to the websites and all that, the more, more money the advertisers get. Similarly, Krishna knew this thousands of years ago. All these concessions, one thing is not conceding. You have to keep your attention on God in some way or the other. If the ways are too difficult, alright, we'll make the ways easier. But the attention has to be on God. So, all the work, fine. You can't do anything for God separately. You cannot do anything spiritual, so-called quote-unquote spiritual. Then do whatever it is that you are doing. Your job, your family, your personal life. But keep connect connecting it to God. Uh, surrender it to God. So this okay, speak loudly. I'll translate. I'll, I'll repeat. These verses that you taught us today, that Sri Krishna is giving advice to Arjuna, reminds me of a conversation Sri Ramakrishna had with Girish Ghosh. Try. Yeah. What's the conversation? So it reminds me of the um, advice Sri Ramakrishna gave Girish Ghosh, where he says, I can't concentrate, I can't do mantra. So uh, Sri Ramakrishna tells him, give me the power of attorney mm. and leave everything else. And that transformed uh, Girish Ghosh's life at, at that point. True. That's a very good example. Thank you. Girish Ghosh. Mm -hmm. He asked Sri Ramakrishna for his grace and Sri Ramakrishna told him to repeat the name of God and Girish said, no, I can't do that. It's exactly like this. It's, I don't know. I, I am a, a you know, theater director. My life is, is a bohemian life. It doesn't have a particular routine or discipline. I don't know when. He says, at least think of God before you eat and go to sleep. He said, even I can't do that also because I don't know when I'll eat. I don't know when I'll go to sleep. Now, he is not being tamasic. His nature is, he's a tremendously rajasic person. If he was tamasic, Sri Ramakrishna would have scolded him and said, no, you stick to a routine. But he knows Girish Ghosh is, is sincere to the core. He'll do exactly, if he says something, he'll do it. So Sri Ramakrishna finally said, alright, give me the power of attorney. So he goes one step further than Krishna has also gone. Here Krishna says, at least whatever you do, you surrender it to, to me. Whatever you're doing in your life. I'm no longer asking you to do this and don't do that. Whatever you're doing in your life, you surrender it to. That reminds me. Um, it's a nice example. We had this Swami. He was an Irishman. And uh, he became a monk. And he, I, I saw him in his advanced old age. Swami um, Bhavanarandaji. He's a disciple of Swami Shivananda. He used to smoke. And a cigarette. This was, don't look so shocked. This was, younger people are looking shocked. How can Swami smoke? This was before your generation. Everybody smoked. <laughs> I didn't, but most people did. I remember going to Houston, Mission Control, NASA. And we were asked to sit and explain what was going on the visitor's gallery. And then the guide said, take a look at the, the armrests of your chairs. So every armrest had a little box. And he said, I bet most of you, the younger people, don't know what that is. That's an ashtray. <laughs> and the, the person said, when during the uh, space missions, you know, the space shuttle missions and all, 
this place, the control room and mission control and the visitors, there would be a haze of smoke all around. <laughs> yeah. So he would smoke, this Swami. And then the stub of the cigarette, he would put it out, then he would light it again and smoke. And somebody said, Swami, don't do that. We'll get you a fresh packet of cigarettes. Just throw it away. You know what he said? He said, I can't throw it away. It's prasad. <laughs> it's offered food, prasad. What do you mean prasad? He says, mentally I've offered it to Vivekananda. <laughs> and it's Vivekananda's prasad. And he meant it. He meant it. He can't throw it away. He says, even the <laughs> little stub, he says, it still has to be used because it's, it's prasad is offered from Vivekananda. Now see, you can do everything to God. Now Girish Ghosh says, no. He was quite clear. Nope, that also won't work for me. I won't remember to offer it to God. Then Sri Ramakrishna says, power of attorney. You give me the power of attorney, I'll do everything for you. From now on, I'm in charge of your life. Girish Ghosh thought, that's a good deal. <laughs> good. Now I can do whatever I like. He's going to do all my spiritual stuff for me. What, but what happened? This man was transformed from a bohemian um, you know, theater personality into a saint. And people used, monks used to go and visit him later on in his life. And they would marvel at his, at his life. And Girish Ghosh would say, now, I didn't know at that time what I was saying. Now at every moment when I have to do something, say something, even think something, I, I think, what would Sri Ramakrishna want me to do now? What does he want me to think? What does he want me to say? What does he want me to do? Every moment of my waking life into my dreams also, Sri Ramakrishna pervades all of it. Extraordinary. See, attention. Now all his attention. If he had agreed twice in the morning, take the name of God, twice in the evening, at least the rest of the day he would have had to himself. Now, no. <laughs> one more hand was up. That would be the last one, yes. That young person. Yes. Tell us the question. Uh, good evening, Swamiji. My name is Madhav. Yes. I wanted to revisit the story you told at the beginning, um, and more specifically, the role of diet in achieving one's goals, be it spiritual realization or something what else. What was the story? Um, this was uh, about Amartya Sen asking the question of... Oh, about uh, Arjuna and, mm -hmm. and, and the violence. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Not a story. It's actually, it happened. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so there are two questions. The first is, can you attribute Arjuna's reluctance to fight his cousins to diet, to maybe a sattvic diet? Um, and secondly, well, I'm personally a vegetarian, and it's for spiritual and ethical reasons. Let's say I wanted um, the inner strength to confront my problems head on. Would you recommend, or would you say it's in my best interest to, to switch my diet to, to something I more logistic? I don't think you have to give too much importance to that. I think whatever suits you physically, that's most important. Second, culturally, what you are used to, what you have been brought up with, and whatever you have decided for yourself. Um, Vivekananda was a little careful about this. You know, he, one thing he scolded us Hindus was that your religion has gone into your cooking pots. He said, <laughs> so whether I'll eat this or I will not eat that, whether I'll eat with the right hand or the left hand, what happens if I touch this, if I, what happens if I do not touch that. And then uh, he said, this kind of a race which has thought of such weighty matters for a millennium, 
it says, if, if it doesn't produce imbeciles, what else will it produce? Um, so is it important? One has to be careful here. And the uh, Upanishads and the Gita also talks about sattvic diet. Upanishads also say ahara shuddho sattva suddhi. So all of these things are there. However, notice none of them make any, any mention of any particular food items. Gita itself, Krishna, he never mentions anywhere. He says it should be sattvic will help you in your spiritual practice. And that's it. It's a small part of the 700 verses. What happens is when we zero in on such things, then that becomes begins to dominate our entire discussion. Uh, discussion should be about you know, selfless service, about meditation, about devotion, and most important, about knowledge. Now, is it because of his diet that Arjuna didn't want to fight? No, 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 not at all. Remember, he had come there to fight. And he's, he's the one who is asking the questions. Everybody else, I'm sure they, they had the same culture, so they more or less ate whatever everybody else was eating. So I don't think that made a big difference to his sudden switch of, of, uh, of mind. Uh, that was more of a, at least Vivekananda says, more of a moral failing of, uh, of a tamasic mindset. Yeah. So about these things, one must be um, a little rational about it. So, now the, the second question, does that mean then I have to switch my diet to be more uh, up and doing? No, I don't think so. Uh, th th that, uh, you're a vegetarian, good. There are people who have been very up and doing. Uh, Hitler was a vegetarian, so. <laughs> 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 On that inspiring note, let's end. <laughs>